Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. It's that time again. It is time for our limited edition quarterly box. And this fall, we are celebrating all things feminist thriller. So we've got three very different thrillers that we have put together, curated in this box. We have The Spare Room by Andrea Bartz, Hurricane Blonde by Hallie Sutton, and Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. These are very different vibes, but are going to leave you on the edge of your seat. We are pre-ordering these boxes, so pre-orders open on August 1st and run until the end of August. I'm not sure exactly what date we're going to do that cutoff, so if you want it, get it, and then they will start shipping the first week of September. We are doing these by pre-order only. You can go to feministbookclub.com shop, get your fall feminist thriller box, and stay tuned for more content more information, more sneak peeks of what's going to be in our fall feminist thriller box. Again, that goes on sale August 1st, and you're not going to want to miss it. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordy. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm joined today by Caroline O'Donoghue to talk about her newest book, The Rachel Incident. I'm looking forward to this conversation and hearing your thoughts, Caroline, because this book was filled with so many relatable experiences about coming into adulthood and figuring out what that means, navigating life and the everyday dichotomies we face, such as joy and shame, hope and desolation, and love and loneliness. So, Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jordi. It's a pleasure to be here. So to orient our listeners who haven't read this book yet, can you share with us what The Rachel Incident is and what inspired it? Absolutely. So The Rachel Incident, it, it follows the story of a girl called Rachel, funnily enough, and it's set in a very familiar time and place for me, which is 2010 in the city of Cork in Ireland, which is where I'm from. It's a very specific time uh, period. It's kind of surprised to me to realize it's sort of a period novel which is that it is after the economic recession, which really hit Ireland quite severely. It's pre-abortion access in Ireland and it's also pre-gay marriage in Ireland. So very much the time and place where I was a young person and where this is set. And, and Rachel, within all of this, she's kind of one of these characters who's she's old before she's young. Like she's very dragged down by, you know, the lack of career opportunities, just finishing an English degree. She worked part-time in a bookstore. And during this, she meets the person who's going to be the sort of biggest impact on her life, a guy called James Devlin, who is currently in the closet. He's around the same age, and they quickly decide to start living together. And they have this like great, wonderful romance that lasts the length of their lives. Their first sort of like weird bonding ritual they do as best friends is they decide that Rachel is going to seduce her professor, who's a guy called Professor Byrne, and the way they're going to do it is they're going to hold a book launch for his terrible book at their bookshop. And Rachel will sort of like do an empire records and seduce him there. And this doesn't go to plan. I don't mind saying that because it's not a huge spoiler. It happens on that page 80. And though Dr. Byrne does have wandering eyes, they're not necessarily for Rachel. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of more or less the plot of the book that what goes on from there is sort of a very naughty year of their lives full of kind of betrayals and 
relationships that get more and more complex. And then we, we barrel towards the titular incident towards the very end. And in terms of what inspired the book, it was very much a lockdown project that happened. And I, I've, I've heard this is true of quite a few other authors. And for people in general, like people who don't even make art, that when lockdown hit, because there was no new events that, that we were processing, we literally had no new memories to make. The brain did a funny thing, which is that it began to sort of naturally process old memories. And I think lots of people had that experience of suddenly waking up in the middle of the night remembering the name of their ex-boyfriend's little brother, you know, and suddenly wanting to Google him and seeing where he is now, you know, and that definitely came for me. And I, I was really sitting in this moment when I was living in Cork with my best friend during that time and how it was in many ways sort of the, one of the happiest times of my life. And even though there was so much going wrong and so much static around that moment politically, how exciting it was and how much there was to play for. So the, while the plot is completely fictional, the setting is very close to home. Thank you. And I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who had those moments during lockdown. Yeah. So it's just another relatable aspect. Part of me is nervous because like, I'm like, the next book I write will be, you know, not in lockdown. I'm like, oh, what if I'm not a good writer? Oh, well, I was only a good writer for one book when I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> yeah. And those, those hesitations and fears make sense. I feel like a lot of people kind of think that, but I also think that you know, that can be another sense of inspiration. Yeah, yeah. All right, so what lessons can we learn from Rachel and James in navigating adulthood and embracing the things we love in the face of a society that could try to shame us or belittle our dreams? What's wonderful about James and Rachel, and I'm thinking about this a lot lately, when you're promoting a book, you're sort of forced to meditate on the themes of your own writing more, even though when you're writing it, all you're really interested in is, is telling a nice story. But I've been thinking a lot about straight women and gay men and why that partnership and that friendship and that connection is appears so much across all media, you know, whether it's Nancy Mitford and Evelyn Wall, or, you know, Noel Coward and Gertrude Lawrence, or, you know, Baroness Von Trapp and, or no, Baroness from The Sound of Music and her friend Max. Like this partnership that you see across all of media and art and what, and we sort of, obviously we know it as kind of a Will and Grace or Terry and Stanford Blatch kind of thing and how we trick ourselves into thinking it is maybe a shallow relationship because it is often one that is filled with like, like flippancy and jokes and, and hysteria and giggling. But actually under that, I think is a place where two sorts of people, which is straight women and gay men who are forced to show many different masks to the world, whether that's being closeted or wanting or needing to present a certain you know, visual of, of gay life or being a woman and having to be a certain kind of either low-key girl for the man that you want to be with or a certain kind of daughter or a certain kind of sister or friend, that there's something around that particular kind of relationship that both allows the masks to slip and also encourages the painting of new masks. So it's like fantasy can live and you can sort of both act like you're two people who host the world's most fabulous talk show and how joyful that is and how how forgiving it is also. I loved painting their relationship. I do think that a way to navigate, if you're in that part of your life in your 20s and navigating that part of your life, I think 
having a friend who will both let you be yourself and also let you fantasize about being the most ideal version of yourself is such a beautiful thing to hold. And as much as they are able to have that kind of friendship, my second piece of advice would be that do not, when you fall in love with someone, try to avoid tunnel vision as much as possible because I think a lot of the problems those two characters get into is because they're so obsessed with themselves and one another and like for example you know Rachel has this boyfriend that she sort of like dismisses as being a fuckboy who doesn't really care about her but actually he's somebody who finds it so difficult to penetrate the sort of the relationship of James and Rachel that he he almost thinks that he's not needed and what happens with them is that it kind of maroons them as well it's quite specific advice but <laughs> definitely one that looks about Yes. In your own life, has there been any instances where you've kind of been faced with something that, you know, either society kind of poo-poos on or that you've been hesitant about? And how did you work through that? Well, I have a podcast called Sentimental Garbage. And it's funny, I started it when I was um, just starting out as an author when I was still in my 20s. And it was sort of like both a interest in, because I was a young woman writing, there was a lot of quite loaded questions about chick lit and women's fiction and, and what it meant for something to be women's fiction. And I naturally became very interested in that. And so I started talking to, to people about their favorite chick lit authors. And it naturally expanded from there of not just talking about books, but talking about everything, whether it's, you know, Taylor Swift or snacking and like why preferring snacking to regular meals is a kind of a essentially sort of feminine thing and and it was really fun but when you say things that like society poo-poos on I've become fascinated with that I think talking about like that about things that you love and that you appreciate and they give you comfort and connection or whatever but are you dismissing the piece of work or are you dismissing yourself like who are you who are you bullying with that because even when you say something like the only TV I want just selling Sunset. I know it's shit and I know I'm banned for doing it, but I love it and it's comfort watching and whatever. And doing the podcast for so many years and looking at what women like and how the stuff that we like is treated culturally has been a really interesting way to rewire my brain and sort of make me have more in integrity, I guess, about the things that I enjoy. And then what that indirectly led to was that when I picked up Rachel, it was probably the first book I've written where I wasn't going to try any tricks and I wasn't going to trick, try to trick people into thinking I was more literary than I was. And I was just going to talk about the things that I cared about, which was, you know, friendship and love and all these very youthful ideas. And now the book is done and the book is out and it's been, it's like being reviewed as though it's very literary. And I never had any sense of that when I was doing it. So I think, yeah, I think like teaching yourself integrity through just, Loving the things that you love has been a, a really interesting lesson for me. Yeah, I have to say, and mentioning Taylor Swift, I'm a huge Swiftie. And <laughs> I remember her saying something about how, you know, people will try to belittle you for the things that you love. And they can call it so many different things. And the one that's coming to mind right now is, you know, loving pumpkin spice lattes in the fall <laughs> and like all of these things that people either try to call basic or kind of put you in a box for. And it's mm -hmm. like, what, like, why, like, why is it wrong to like that? Yeah, uh, it's for like so many things. Totally. My, my partner works in advertising and he was heading up a team and the, the, 
target audience was like women age sort of, you know, older millennials, like 30, 32 to 45 kind of thing. And he said that like, he was talking to the team and they kind of kept saying these derogatory things like, oh, you know, the Lululemon mom who kind of loves pumpkin spice lattes and blah, blah, blah. And they kept using all these like weird cultural things and attaching them to the word mom or mom. And he stopped the meeting and he was like, what do you guys have? What problems do you guys have with moms? And they were like, well, nothing, but you know, they love their Lululemon, they love their pumpkin spice. And he's like, no, 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 like stop that. I know what you're doing and we're going to stop that and we're going to start the meeting again. And I was so, I was so proud of him for that. And I was like, oh, yay. It's like, we do just deride things that are so female. And it's, it, it's a tr- the trickle down nature of that in our culture where it feeds into our advertising. It condescends to people. It makes people feel like they're lesser. And yeah, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, I feel like this could be like a whole a whole discussion by itself because there's there's so many things like this and I'm happy to hear that at least some people are speaking up and things are changing a little bit. Yeah, me too. And I'm glad it's and bad men are doing it too, you know, because people famously listen to them. All right, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing all of your thoughts. And I'm so excited for readers to get their hands on the Rachel incident. Thank you, Jordy. If you are a fan of Taylor Jenkins Reid, Jacqueline Woodson, Kylie Reid, Christina Enriquez, or Lisa Ko, I have a book that you are going to want to read immediately. Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm by Laura Worrell was just released in paperback and is the sexy, passionate, honest, and raw literary novel you've been craving. Don't take it from me though, the accolades are numerous. Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm was named Book of the Year by Oprah Daly and Kirkus, and one of the most anticipated books from the Washington Post, People, Literary Hub, and more. It was nominated for the Penn Faulkner Award and the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. So yeah, it has some meat to it. Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm is the story of a messy jazz man we love to hate and the women who love him and are loved by him. This isn't romance, but it's definitely romantic. This book is a real look at women's love, from family to friends to lovers to partners. It's a story about bad boys, about music, and about the multitudes of women's stories. So if you love multiple points of view in a literary novel, one that shows the messiness and the complications of love, and novels that really champion the stories of women, you can't miss Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm by Laura Worrell, now available in paperback from Vintage. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I use she, her pronouns, and I am here with the incredible Neva. Oh my gosh, too sweet. Hi, everyone. I also use she, her pronouns. We're both Feminist Book Club content contributors. Today, we're going to be talking about a bunch of books that should have been movies. As always, all of our books will be that are mentioned will be in our discussion. There's no trigger warnings for any of these books. There's some like mild horror, but it's really not going to be too big. We're going to get into things that have been stopping books from turning into movies, stuff that would have been amazing, and just all over fangirling about how great it is to have things that are text be turned visual, because both are great. Both are great. So, Marquita, do you want to go ahead and kick us off? Sure. I wanted to talk about two books that are eco-horrors, eco-thrillers, which is a genre, subgenre that I really, really love. I feel like it is especially scary because it seems like pretty prescient. 
And I kind of like to be freaked out and have existential crises, I guess. I don't know. But the first one I wanted to mention is Clean Air by Sarah Blake. And I did talk about this on the podcast maybe a year and a half or two years ago. And this uh, tells a story of it's living in a world where pollen is like so intense that like the air is toxic. And living, I live in the Willamette Valley, which is like a terrible place for pollen. And every year when it's grass pollen season, I feel like I'm living in this terrible world. But there's a serial killer and you get to the point in the book where they catch the serial killer and you realize that like that wasn't the point of the story the whole time. And it just keeps navigating through these really interesting interpersonal dynamics. And like, how do you make a world like a safe world when going outside is dangerous? And the way that Blake has architected this, this world is, is pretty phenomenal. She's thought of a lot of different little details and a lot of ways in which the things that are going right could like slip away and go awry. I think it would be fantastic for screen adaptation. It is already pretty evocative. So I would definitely pay some good money to see that and to be scared and just like live in that for like a little bit. And the second one I wanted to mention is The Light Pirate by Lily Dalton. I know we've talked about that I some sometime recently on the on the podcast. That takes place in Florida. It takes place in a world where hurricanes are so severe that it, it they like obliterate entire communities. They're unable to rebuild. I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's been a while since I've read it, but I want I really, really, really loved how Dalton wrapped us up into that story and made us live in this place where it felt like there wasn't anything safe as well. It's a similar theme to clean air. Wow. I love this concept of pollen that has gotten so out of control that it becomes a literal hazard. (laughs) That is wild. Oh my gosh. I'm going to take it in a different direction with something that is really wholesome. Honestly, I have like the biggest missed opportunity in film history of the cutest fucking comic book series. This is called The Tea Dragon Society by K. O'Neill. It's gotten a bunch of awards because these books are like if Studio Ghibli and Pixar and a pot of chamomile tea and a dragon all had like an adorable, beautifully drawn hybrid baby because the entire plot is about tea dragons which are like the cutest fucking things ever because they're dragons, like tiny little like dog-sized dragons that have leaves growing on their horns and you can pick the little leaves and brew tea from them. And so it's there's there's like diverse characters, a lot of like a gay ligabatois representation. So the story is about Greta who like stumbles upon this art of tea dragon caretaking and she like joins the society and it's just got this like super wholesome storyline with just a lot of like heart and warmth and all the like vibes of a warm Sunday morning with your favorite cuppa. So I am really pro this turning into a movie because it's already a comic. So I feel like it would be pretty easy to like be like, all right, here is our character design. We just turn it into some animations and it's got all the elements that we kind of want right now of the world is going to shit. Let's find something that feels a little bit more wholesome and stories of like friends finding each other and people being able to like show up as their authentic selves and still being accepted. But the thing is, I feel like there are often times where adaptations just don't live up to the original visual style of the source material. 
see the shitty fucking initial Sonic movie trailer where they had to like redo the entire movie. So it will definitely take like a lot of serious animation prowess to do these guys justice. And secondly, I feel like it doesn't really follow the traditional Hollywood blockbuster formula because there's no like big baddie or epic quests and battles. And it's really just about like the slow, patient art of like growing and learning and being honest. And that's kind of a tough sell when a lot of the stories right now are just fast paced action and sex and high stakes. And so I kind of feel like this would be a little bit more kid geared like of a movie. But, you know, some parents are being kind of dicks about their kids seeing movies that have Ligabatua representation because some people don't like to pretend, like to pretend that gay people don't exist. But if, you know, this did come up into a movie, I think I was thinking about who could like play the different character voices. And the main character is like a black woman, a black girl, really. She's a child. And I was thinking like the voice actor of actress of Moana would do really amazing because it's like, you know, she's got the vibe for a fantasy setting. So that's my dream for the Tree Tea Dragon Society movie. It's definitely a long shot, but you know, they said that about Guardians of the Galaxy too, and that, you know, came out pretty well. So yeah, brewing up some interest for this <laughs> adorable fucking comic series. Highly recommend. It is originally intended for a kid's book, but it's just so well done that I highly recommend it for like readers of of all ages. I love that so much. I know that I talk a lot about how much I love horror, but I need palate cleansers. And a lot of times when I'm looking for something like that or a reset, or if things are really challenging in my life, I'll reach out for things like that. So that's going to go on my TBR pretty much. I know. I oscillate between, and you got to go between both, right? Like on one hand, you have the horror and like the nonfiction. And on the other hand, you're like, I just need like a a warm, cozy story with bright graphics and with like a little rom-com action. You got to balance it out. Absolutely. We all need balance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the, the other book that I was thinking about and that I've really been thinking about since I read it is also a comic. So, you know, kind of similar, but it is Good Talk by Mira Jacob. We did interview the author. We did a Q&A with her and she's phenomenal. She's such a phenomenal person. That was like a therapy session. Her book is tells a story of her growing up with immigrant parents and kind of discovering like the different parts of herself that need to grow, just like challenging discussions and, and things like that. And you see her retrospective, like different moments in her life where she's like, oh, wow, that was racist. You know, and like, this is how I need to like change that and grow from that or trying to navigate the world with in-laws that are, have a very opposite political opinions to her. And it, the way that she uh, captures all of these moments and like her experience with colorism because she's got darker skin, it just is like, it feels like sitting and listening to someone tell you a really engrossing story about an experience they had, and you just want to know more details. I know that that doesn't really translate very well to the screen either, but I think it would be phenomenal. I mean, she breaks the fourth wall a lot. We've seen a lot of success with different media that that uses that technique and like invites the reader in or invites the viewer in. 
And I feel like it's, it encourages you as a consumer of this media to really think about your own experiences and your own perspectives and your own growth and how you yourself relate to the world and whether there's space for movement on that or not. It's kind, it's loving, it is honest, and it is something, I read it all in one sitting. I couldn't get up until I finished it and I returned to it often because it does feel really comforting. There's a lot of validation in it for me because she has very similar viewpoints to mine and I think probably to a lot of our listeners as well. So it's kind of like you get a little bit of your like confirmation bias that you need some days. And I, yeah, I think my pitch is that Myra Jacob play herself because She's so cool. She's my hero. I want to. I want to be her when I grow up. Oh my gosh! I I love that. I love everything about this. It's the struggle for these like kind of more deeper emotional things. You know, I we all start off with these like Disney movies being like be who you are and friendship and blah blah blah. And I'm like, this is lame and boring. Give me action. And then like a few years later, you're like, oh wait, turns out being who you are and like figuring out your purpose and all this deep shit is actually really fucking hard. whoopsies (laughs) yeah i mean there's like that's like for sure a real action situation like there the stakes are high you're like battling these invisible forces like it's really challenging to just be your authentic self it's not as easy as just like not giving a fuck my gosh okay well perfect segue for my next book that i wanted to chat about because it was very much like a being yourself and the way in which being yourself can actually add to the like diverse perspectives and stuff in the room So this one is Uprooted by Naomi Novik, which is very like Beauty and the Beast meets Lord of the Rings, but with like less singing furniture and more magical badassery and just like way more feminism and equality and like great representation. So this one I'm going to be talking to like Hollywood bigwigs with good cameras and CGI because... It's a lot of fantasy. We've got like our protagonist, Agnieszka, who is this like unlikely heroine from a small village. And her whole life, she thought she wouldn't be like the person chosen by this like wild wizard. But then she is and has to kind of like grow into this role and kind of realize her full potential. And so she gets this wizard who's like this, he's very like snarky, irritable, kind of like dragon vibes. So there's like magical warfare. There's a corrupted woods that's right next to her house. It kind of makes Mirkwood look like a playground, honestly. But a lot of like intrigue, plot twists. One thing that I really love about Naomi Novik is she really knows how to like weave the magic into the words of the book itself. So like as you're reading, you start getting the effects of the spell and then you realize you're like in the spell. And I have not ever encountered that with another like magical fantasy author ever. And it creates this like, wonderful like fucking feeling of like real immersion and like you are the person experiencing the magic yourself so the main struggle with this one is really just that like the scope of her world building Naomi Novik is just like very expansive and it's not just like some magic wand waving and like occasional potions class a la Harry Potter it's like whole landscapes being twisted and reshaped and like like monsters and like very abstract magical concepts like the concept of truth one of the main elements of the book is they cast the spell that reveals the truth 
And so it reveals the truth in person, reveals the truth on a place. And so that can be really hard to depict without either like a fat fucking bag of CGI money or some serious creative genius. The other thing I was thinking of is something that would be really great for this, though, is that like the character of Agnieszka is very much what audiences want right now. She's like got depth. She's relatable. She's funny. She's very klutzy. She's got like an amazing character arc from like being really klutzy and kind of a like messy doesn't know what she wants to becoming a very klutzy, messy, knows what she wants and who she's worth. So like who she is doesn't actually change, which I really love. It's just her perception of her power and who she is and what she can do to the people around her. And so I think casting the right actress for that would be kind of a big deal, but very much like could bring this to life and have this be a thing that like 21st century audiences would totally eat the fuck up. So yeah, all we just need is like a million dollars, a passionate crew, and maybe Naomi Novik herself on set because that author I would do anything for. I think you might need more than a million dollars for this. <laughs> possibly, possibly. But like, you know, we're, God damn it. Why does producing movies have to be so much more expensive than just like typewriting a little, a little book on your little computer clicky clacky? I am with you. And, and that sounds great. I love that there are more and more representations of like character arcs where the, where the character doesn't transform into a newer, better, completely different version of themselves you know they're like still the person they are at their core they just have found like strength or they found direction or they because that's like how we transform as people you know we don't like work really hard at at a task and like or a skill and like suddenly we're you know more extroverted and charismatic and charming and beautiful and we're just like still like the messy whole humans that we are but mm-hmm. we have, have acquired another like inner strength oh i love uh, that yeah i've got a couple of honorable mentions that i wanted to just like throw in there and not talk too much about because i feel like we we have talked about them a little bit quite a bit on like the podcast and the blog like we've covered them in a couple of places so folks can look for those resources if they want to know more. But This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub, fantastic. Uh, multiverse, time travel, going back into your teen body, trying to like, you know, relive nostalgia, find the right direction for your life, father-daughter relationships, grief, loss, sci-fi, fantasy. Love it. Then also The Hacienda by Isabel Cañas. I am an unabashed fangirl of Isabel Cañas. I will, I will read anything she writes. I cannot wait to read The Vampires of El Norte, which comes out next month. And I think, you know, haunt, like haunted house, like the, ha- the house as a character, as a haunted character, a sexy priest, can't say enough about that. <laughs> you know, the class struggles, colonization, all that. Fantastic. Love it. And then lastly, I, w- I wanted to say Your Driver is Waiting by Priya Guns, which is that Renee and I talked about it. It's marketed as a like a gender flip taxi driver. It takes place in some unknown big city in the world. It takes place in like some unknown, not clear if it's like present day or like slightly future time. And it's dirty. It's gritty. It's really compelling. And it handles a lot of these really big issues like, like white saviorism. And and poverty and the effects of poverty very deftly. 
And I would just love, I would love to see just like a really gritty, dirty, like movie made out of this book. So it's one, it was like, oh, one of my favorite books that I've read. I like that. It's giving like Adam's family mixed with the Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Oh, I love that. Well, it's been really wonderful to talk with you about this. I'm so glad that we did. I have now like a whole list of movies that I can't stop feeling like should be, or a whole list of books that I feel like should be movies. And I'm going to like probably sit in that. Plus now my TBR is extended significant. I know. Uh, I definitely like wrote down all the books that you mentioned and was like, well, I just finished four books yes, like this last week, and now I'm about to add four more. It never yep, ends. It, it doesn't <laughs> end. That's my TBR is a place where I don't have balance, and I'm <laughs> fine with that. And me neither. <laughs> I want to eventually get to the like Marie Kondo method of like 30 books in your house maximum. And I'm like, mm, that's a good goal. And then I look around and I'm like, fuck, there's like 200. I'll get there. I'll get there. Because yeah. I admit like a lot of these books do not have reread potential or some of these books I'm like, that was great. I'm not going to enjoy it as much now that I know what happens. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I definitely give away a lot of books, but I am taking in more books than I'm giving away. Reduce, reuse, recycle, baby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to start handing them out as like party favors, like people passing me on the street. You know what I've found is a lot of bars in my area have like a little library in the back. So now whenever I like go grab a drink with friends, I will like bring my spare books that I don't know where to put and leave them in bars. And I feel like that is a good vibe because then they usually will go to people who like will enjoy them, read them because there's a bunch of other stuff on the shelves too. So people are perusing. That's awesome. I like that. (laughs) Well, if folks are looking for me online, they can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. I am really very, very, very occasionally there. I People can find me on every single social media platform at Notes by Neva. And definitely check out Neva's stuff. It's, It's informative. It's clever. It's interesting. I love it. I'm going to be your cheerleader. I've learned so much from stuff that you post. Well, thank you. Yeah, I do plant science and plants that are in fashion and skincare and skincare science and makeup. All right, friends, until next time, be well. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh, oh, oh. A well-